0: Getting my makeup on for the day
1: and i just looked at some of the things i was putting on my face and there's so many ingredients i can't pronounce like hydrogenated didesanine and uh, isododecanine hydro, anyway, you get it. I can't even pronounce most of these words. So it makes me think, what am I putting on my face? But I've heard that in the past, there's some really awful toxic chemicals and things that people put on their face that actually made them sick. And I thought, because it's Halloween season, why not talk about some of those horror stories of our makeup past, you know? What kinds of things do people put on their face? And is it really different than the beauty things that we use today? So uh, let's talk about it, shall we? Oh, why, hello there, all of you curious peeps. I am, of course, Kendall Long, the host of Little Curiosities, if you didn't know that already. If my name sounds familiar, it might be because you know me from the show The Bachelor or Bachelor in Paradise. And on that show, I was on a quest to find love. But on this podcast, I'm on a completely different kind of quest. The quest, of course, for knowledge. For this week, because it's Halloween month, and yes, I do celebrate Halloween in an entire month, I have another creepy episode in store for you. I call it, drumroll, Killer Cosmetics of the Past. do 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 do, do. Because let me tell you, people used to do some insane things to look good, like putting literal poison on their faces. My skin was crawling while researching all of this, but don't worry, I have some palette cleansers in this episode as well, some little silly beauty trends too, so it's not all doom and gloom, but uh, there is a lot of doom and gloom in this episode because a lot of the beauty products they used in the past were pretty dang scary. So I got some of the information for this podcast from the book, Skin Deep, The Truth About Beauty Aids, Safe and Harmful. So definitely recommend you check that book out if you want to learn more about all these killer cosmetics, all the things that people used to do to their bodies and faces and all that stuff that was not so good for them. So check that out. Before I get started, don't forget to give this podcast a little love by subscribing maybe liking and giving a review or a comment. This is after all, a brand spanking new podcast. So anything you can do to give us a little support really means so much and it helps out a lot. So thank you so much ahead of time for that. Alrighty, got that done with. So let's kick this episode off with a product that helps to make its users look radiant. I'm talking about radium. Radium was discovered in 1898 by Marie Curie, and she actually is the first woman to get a Nobel Prize for her work in physics and also with her work with discovering radium, which, you know, it's a really good prize, but at the same time, she might have regretted it because radium is uh, radioactive, and it looks like common table salt during the day. Like, it looks like there's nothing wrong with it, nothing special, but at night, it really glows, and that's because radiation agitates the nitrogen that is naturally present in the air, and this creates an excited buzz of energy that can be seen as a shimmer of light. So this greenish glow that is produced by radium was so tempting and irresistible in the beauty world, they just had to put it in some products. It was mixed with face creams and all manner of other beauty products, and it was advertised as liquid sunshine. How catchy is that? Literally, because of the glow, it looked like it was bottled up sunshine. And you know it's kinda catchy. I'm sure they sold a lot of bottles with that catchphrase. In the 19th century, that healthy glow, seen on the faces of the cream's users, irritated faces, was seen as a good thing. Especially since during the 1920s and 30s, scientists feared that people weren't getting enough vitamin D in urban environments. And because of this, they actually encouraged deliberate tanning which I can kind of understand because now that I'm living in Germany, there's definitely not as much sun here as there was in California. And whenever I see some sun peeking through the clouds, I just like sprawl out and I'm like, photosynthesis, please let me soak up all this vitamin D. It really does make you feel better to be out in the sunshine. Maybe that's just my head working its magic and trying to tell me that tan is good. But yes, we all know that too much exposure out in the sun equals skin cancer and all those things, so wear sunscreen. But, you know, it's okay to be on the sun every now and then. It's a healthy thing. But anyway, during the 1920s and 30s, devices that stimulated a healthy dose of sunshine and its health benefits were all the rage. And that's how radioactive liquid sunshine slipped in the cracks. While I was researching, I literally saw dozens of news articles with titles like, Radium is restoring health to thousands, Radium and beauty, a new force for betterment. Radiate your youth and beauty. Honestly, I think that last one is probably still used today. But anyways, we now know that radium can cause radiation poisoning, which in some cases can lead to death. It actually killed Marie Carey herself after years of being exposed to it. So maybe she regretted discovering it in the first place. I don't know. You know, that's the thing about being the first person to discover things. You're kind of the test guinea pig in a way. But the interesting thing is that radium's main practical use is actually in medicine. It produces this radon gas from radium chloride that's used in radiotherapy for cancer. So isn't it weird that the thing that causes cancer is actually a way to cure cancer? I think that's really interesting. But in terms of beauty, this radium killer craze died out. Along with a few people, including the radium girls, if you've ever heard that story about the girls that would paint clocks to make them visible at night, the unfortunate thing is that they would dip little brushes in this radium paint and then lick it. So they were ingesting it, they would play with it, put this radium paint on their bodies sometimes, and yes, they all unfortunately died of radium poisoning. So there's that. But killer cosmetics have been around for much, much longer than the flapper era, from Queen Elizabeth, who was rumored to being poisoned by her own makeup, to Egyptian's flaunting killer eyeliner. It brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, if looks could kill, because after listening to this episode, you'll definitely be convinced that they can.
0: Today, makeup is a ginormous industry, and
1: that's an understatement. You can buy it in stores, online, from influencers, and the products and brands are limitless, with seemingly tens of thousands of shades, colors, and shimmers to choose from. When we see someone walking down the street with a face full of makeup, we hardly bat a mascara-brushed eye. But makeup acceptance wasn't always as widespread as it is today. How did ancient people feel about makeup? In the Middle Ages, makeup was considered deceitful to men because it hid what you actually looked like. But still, women wanted to look their best, so they found ways to add a little cosmetic primp without it being too obvious. Strangely enough, though, wearing makeup was considered okay if the person was considered, quote, ugly or particularly sick. Adding a little blush or powder was acceptable in these cases to make the woman as appealing as possible to her husband so he wasn't tempted into infidelity due to the unattractive appearance of his wife. Very interesting. But the hilarious thing is, at the same time, the rules forbade a woman from making herself too good-looking. You know, they didn't want her attracting a man she wasn't married to. Honestly, this is all just a bunch of shenanigans, if you ask me. When it came to the ancient Greeks, however, they were a tad more forgiving. Everyone kind of knew that people were wearing makeup during that time, but it was important to make it look as natural as possible and as if they weren't wearing anything. In ancient Egypt, makeup was widely used by both men and women, no matter what your social status was. Everybody had a little bit of makeup going on. And it didn't just serve a cosmetic purpose either, by making you pretty and such— it was also considered to have medicinal and spiritual benefits. Ancient Egyptians believed looking beautiful was important even after death. To them, it was vital to look beautiful in front of the gods when their judgment day arrived. And to prepare for that judgment day, they used a plethora of anti-wrinkle creams, moisturizers, hair dyes, perfumes, you name it. Some ancient hieroglyphs even depict pharaohs getting pedicures— Regardless of whether people of ancient times either celebrated or shunned makeup use, in almost every single era that I researched, there was at least a little dabbling into the cosmetic arts. From eyeshadows to lip and cheek rouges, people were keen to add a little razzmatazz to their look. This, of course, led to many experimentations with different ingredients that gave results reflecting the trends of the time. And when it comes to experimenting, there are bound to be a few hiccups along the way. Because, after all, the people who are the first to do things are the ones that are the guinea pigs, like I said earlier. There is a lot to cover when it comes to deadly makeup history, so let's get started with coverage. During the Middle Ages, individuals seeked a flawless complexion. Blemishes, after all, were proof of God's wrath at sin— and could be seen as evidence of lewd sexual fantasies bubbling to the surface. Ugh. To keep complexions clear, people sometimes washed their face with uh, urine. Urine does contain urea, which is a natural exfoliant, but it has so little of it that the actual effects would be pretty insignificant. Another remedy was to use ground-up ox dung to treat blemishes. Yes, that sounds a lot better. And some even coated their faces with bull or hair blood. So, uh, yeah, pretty scary. If none of these remedies worked, and I bet a fair share were lacking in results, and in some cases they probably did the opposite, and or the individual had any other unsightly difference like freckles, moles, or a birthmark on the skin, they had to at least try to get rid of it, because this was dangerous territory. This was because any kind of skin coloration difference was seen as stains of witchcraft. And, uh, there were a few cosmetic solutions to help with this problem. For instance, smallpox scars were filled with human fat. Where do they get this fat? The apothecary, of course. Or, you know what? Maybe the town executioner. Also, acids like lead and vinegar were used to bleach complexions. Mercury, lead, carbolic acid, lotions, aka poison. So all those things you can put on your face to help get rid of those unsightly witch marks. Also, pale skin was seen as a sign of prestige and beauty during the Middle Ages, since it showed that they didn't have to work in a field all day, in the sun. Lacking a tan was like saying, Hey, I can stay indoors all day and not work. Therefore, I am cool. So that was a trend. Another odd popular trend was translucent skin. Women would literally draw veins with a blue pen to make it look like you can see right through their skin. Creepy. Because this ghostly white complexion was all the rage, there was a huge demand for whitening creams and lotions. Oftentimes, gentle ingredients just wouldn't do the trick, so women turned to products that were dangerous and deadly, such as white lead, mercury, carbolic acid, and mercuric chloride. These ingredients were mixed with flour or maybe some animal fat to create a powder or a paste to cover the skin with. I actually did happen upon a recipe for a whitening face paint that seemed rather unappealing and it goes as follows. All right, Steep the lead in the pot of vinegar and rest it in a bed of horse manure for at least three weeks. Of course, Horace is in quotes, so I'm guessing the type of manure could be interchangeable. They go then go on to say, When the lead finally softens to the point where it can be pounded into a flaky white powder, a chemical reaction between vinegar and lead causes the lead to turn white. Grind this into a fine powder. Mix with water and let dry in the sun. After the powder is dry, mix with the appropriate amount of perfume and tinting dye. All I gotta say is, well, at least it smells good, because it's literal poison. And uh, the whole manure bit doesn't make it too appealing either. Not surprisingly, many women ended up becoming sick from the makeup they were using. It impacted their motor skills, and some developed something called lead palsy of the hands, which involved paralysis of the fingers, hand, and wrist. So they couldn't use their hands after they applied this makeup so often, These ingredients also led to scars and disfigurements and eventually caused death if used over and over. And if I know anything about makeup, people usually use it every day. In Greece, it was the same song and dance. They had a very similar recipe that they used to lighten the skin on the face. They concocted a foundation-type cake made from lead shavings, our favorite ingredient, dissolved in vinegar with chalk. So the crazy thing is that the ancient Greeks knew lead was poisonous, and they even used it as a poison to kill people. But despite this, they still used it anyway. That really blows my mind. In fact, in the Middle Ages, when women found out the lethal properties of lead, they tried to use their makeup to kill people. Some would put the powder or paste on their face and cross their fingers and hope their husband would come and kiss them on the cheek. The poisonous substance would then be on his lips and seep into his body, leading to his death. Why resort to the kiss of death? This was a time when women had little to no rights. This poisoning method was seen as an easy way to off a woman's husband so she could gain control of his estate. It's just business, baby. (laughs) An estimated 600 men were intentionally killed using this method— the women themselves would also sometimes die in the process of doing it, since it's on their skin as well, and it also seeps into their body that way. So really, it just turns out that the use of poisonous makeup products would shorten their already short lives. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than,
0: hey... Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: So if you couldn't already tell by now, the Victorian era loved these toxic chemicals all over their face. So much so that they made face masks out of them. I call this one the face mask of death. (laughs) Toxic ingredients like mercury, opium, and ammonia were mixed into a paste and coated on the face to leave on overnight. Because, of course, you'd want to spend more time with all that all over your face. You know, why not have a good old night rest with it on? (laughs) Of course, to wash off the mask, you had to use ammonia. Ammonia was also used to wash and comb hair, Now, we now know that exposure to high concentrations of ammonia can burn the eyes, nose, and throat and cause heaps of other respiratory problems. It can also lead to blindness, lung damage, or death. So, again, not the best thing to be putting on your face. I don't know. It just seems like living in these times was a death sentence just waiting to happen. But hey, maybe that's a good thing because the peeps from the past had a thing for looking near dead— because there was another trend depending on being deathly ill with tuberculosis yes in the 18th and 19th century in victorian europe women believed contracting this ailment was a uh, sexy now during this time tb went by the name consumption because of the dramatic weight loss that followed those who were infected weight loss which was desirable at the time women appreciated the beauty that the disease caused from flushed cheeks, red lips, pale skin, and glossy hair. Some running theories at the time even said that if you were attractive to begin with, you were more likely to contract tuberculosis. We all know that's hubba but back then, I guess people must have believed it. Some women even tried to get tuberculosis on purpose in order to look more beautiful. And that's in quotes. Because I'm not really sure if being deathly ill is a beautiful thing that you want to acquire. In a lot of the cases, this gave the woman a near-certain death sentence. The wealthy class believed consumption caused a relatively easy death with mild symptoms. If I could say one thing about tuberculosis, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as an easy death those who romanticized it dismissed the other not-so-desirable symptoms like, I don't know, coughing, shortness of breath, and a, a collapsed lung. So the reality is that it was actually pretty dang terrible. And if you're thinking, why would anyone want death at all, regardless if it was easy or not? Death back in the Victorian times was viewed much differently than we view it today, The aesthetic of death and sickness was actually highly romanticized, which could be due to the fact that the death rate was high at the time. This was due to urbanization, where many people moved to congested cities with very unsanitary working conditions. So it could have been a way of coping with that grim reality. Eventually, it was discovered that TB was actually not that hot because knowledge that the disease was spread like, a uh, bacteria, people started associating tuberculosis not with beauty and romance, but with unsanitary conditions, and it soon faded out of fashion. Alrighty, that's a lot of death, that's a lot of sad things, so let's take a break, shall we, and briefly talk about a beauty trend that didn't kill anyone, that we know of. So, the 1700s marked a new age of heavy makeup use. Beauty trends, of course, included white powdery, toxic face makeup— But this powdery poison was also accompanied by beauty patches, which were small pieces of fabric made of velvet, taffeta, silk, or satin. Phew. No poison so far. These beauty patches could be glued to the face to cover up blemishes, scars, etc., which sounds like an awesome invention. Since smallpox and syphilis were around at this time and left scarring, beauty patches were a way to cover up the wounds. Here's a fun fact. The French called them mooches, which translated to flies, and I'm guessing that since the most popular color of these mooches was black, it often could be mistaken for a fly in the face, so I can see how they got the name. Especially since they weren't really known for taking many baths at this time. Mooches also came in other colors like red, green, purple, or blue, and shapes like stars, circles, and squares, so they got very creative with these things. If you were but a mere commoner and couldn't afford the fabric mooches, then one could always make them at home with mouse skin. Because that's what they did. They would catch little mice and use their skin for these mooches. I know, it sounds tragic, it sounds sad, but they use mice for a lot of different kinds of things, as you'll find out later in this episode. So with the beauty patch trend, status was often dictated by how many mooches one wore and where they were placed on the face. So if you had too many of these, you were seen as desperate. Too few? You are passé. Placement on the face also had significance. If it was near your mouth, that meant you were a bit flirtatious. Your right cheek meant the woman was married. Left, she was betrothed. If it was on the forehead, it meant dignity. And this placement was also called an assassin. Which, I mean, if you were an assassin, I guess that's where you would aim, right? (laughs) And moochus weren't necessarily just for the face. People also placed them on their neck or shoulders. These are complicated things, you know, you're sending messages by wearing these little face stickers. And I know this beauty trend isn't exactly toxic in itself, but it probably was a way to hide some of the side effects of using poisonous makeup. I also couldn't help but add a little bit of information on these beauty patches because I've actually seen teens today using similar sticker-type patches to cover blemishes. I even saw a paparazzi photo of Justin Bieber rocking a few Black Star-type pimple patches, so it looks like this trend may be coming back. Speaking of a trend that goes way back and keeps coming back, eyeliner. And one of the most iconic eyeliner looks in our world's history is a beautifully dark almond-shaped variety worn by ancient Egyptians. For the Egyptians, makeup around the eyes was used to imitate the gods. Specifically, the god Horus, who is often depicted as a falcon. You know those falcons with those beautiful almond-shaped eyes? It kind of does look like falcons are wearing eyeliner, if you look close enough eyeliner also served as a spiritual protection and was thought to defend someone from evil spirits because it was believed that bad spirits could enter their bodies through their eyes and make them sick. I mean, I guess that's kind of true because you're told not to touch dirty surfaces and rub your eyes because it can get you sick. So there is truth to that. A product called coal, spelled with a K, made with galena or lead sulfide—darn it, there's that word lead again—was used to create dramatic makeup looks associated with ancient Egyptians. These ingredients were often ground up and applied liberally, with wood, bone, or ivory. Coal was also applied to statues of gods on a daily basis, so, you know, they had to make sure the statues looked pretty as well. I, for one, was a huge fan of eyeliner in my younger years. Like, I really put it on. I was a fan of the dramatic cat eye look. So obsessed. Maybe too obsessed. And now I can thank the ancient Egyptians for that phase in my life. So thank you. I'd like to think that I that I wore it well. <laughs> Though I have calmed down on the eyeliner in recent years. Coal is actually still used in some parts of the world today as eyeliner, And because it's made up with ground-up lead sulfide, yeah, it's not that good for you. But ancient Egyptians presumed it helped more than it hurt, and believed that their lead makeup had magical healing properties, so much so that they would chant incantations as they mixed it. They used this lead eyeliner not only for beauty, but to protect their eyes from the sun as well, similar to how American football players use eye black to stop the reflection from the sun during games. And they also believed it helped rid their eyes of insects and other pesky things trying to enter them, like evil spirits. Though it may seem crazy that anything with lead has healing properties, the ancient Egyptians may have been onto something. According to a report published by Analytical Chemistry, the lead-based makeup turned out to have antibacterial properties and helped to prevent infection. You see, during periods when the Nile River was flooding, Egyptians acquired infections by bacteria particles entering their eyes, aka evil spirits. This caused irritation, inflammation, and disease. Scientists say that because the lead-based makeup was toxic, it actually killed the bacteria in the eyes before it had a chance to spread. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it should be used today in any way. Scientists also say that the toxic lead compounds by far outshadow the health benefits. So it's one of those don't-try-it-at-home kind of things. Unlike us today, ancient Egyptians had a rather short life expectancy—around 30—so the side effects wouldn't have had time to appear. Humans today can expect to live much more than that—probably around double, if all goes well—more than enough time to suffer the consequences of lead near your eyeballs. So, yeah, just don't do it. Now, you can't have eyeliner without eyeshadow, and the ancient Egyptians were best known for that bright greenish-blue shade. And how did they acquire this beautiful color, you ask? By crushing malachite, which is a type of copper mineral. Of course, inhaling any small particles of this mineral could be toxic, but by now with this episode, you are probably not surprised. Of course it was toxic. Eye glitter was also worn by Egyptians. It was made by crushing iridescent shells of beetles mixed with powder for application. And I actually think this ancient glitter was much better than the microplastics we use today for glitter, so at least it wasn't bad for the environment. Fast forward to the Victorian era, an eyeshadow was also made with ground beetles. But you know they had to add some ground mercury sulfate, antimony, and cinnabar in there? Okay, beetles are okay. Mercury, not so good. Not everyone was wearing eyeshadow at this time, thank goodness, because eyeshadow was often associated with relationship professionals. Wink, I think you get the hint there. But still, some women would flaunt it. Women who did use these toxic eyeshadow mixes frequently lost their eyesight. Mercury is also known to cause insanity, so yeah, there's that too. Moving on to the fuzzier part of our eyes—eyelashes and eyebrows. From ancient Egypt to now, eyelashes that are long and luxurious are seen as beautiful and desirable. But that wasn't the case in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Long eyelashes were seen as a symbol of oversexuality, and women eager to disassociate with immodesty would lighten their lashes and over time would eventually do away with them altogether. This was done by painfully removing them, plucking them out, one at a time. This gave a very childlike, innocent look, apparently. But as history often shows, not all trends last, especially one that hurts as much as that one does. And when the no-eyebrow thing eventually died out of fashion, people had trouble growing back their facial hair. And this gave rise to the eyebrow toupee, or something like that fake eyebrows were made to make sure the face didn't stay bare of hair. And what were these little hair masterpieces made of? Rodent fur, of course. See, I told you they use those poor little mice for all their little beauty things. Ancient China also was in favor of removing their eyebrows. During the Tang Dynasty, women would completely pluck out all their eyebrows and then completely redraw them on. No mouse hair needed, And eyebrow styles came in and out of fashion. Blue black pigment derived from charred willow trees was often used to paint on eyebrows in a variety of shapes. During the Han Dynasty, sharply pointed Vulcan like eyebrows were the thing. Another trend was sorrow brows shaped upward in the middle to create an expression of sadness. Speaking of plucking out an eyebrow or two in the name of beauty, a product called Lashler hit the markets in 1933. It was a new and improved eyelash and eyebrow dye and promised to give its users a radiant personality. Oh no, there's that word again. And I guess eyebrows do express feelings, so maybe they're onto something. But one thing that wasn't in its advertisements? A labeled warning saying, might cause death, cause yeah. A 52-year-old woman was reported to have used the Lashler product after completely removing her right eyebrow by way of plucking. First of all, ouch. But second of all, why only the right one? Why pluck it away at all? The article, unfortunately, wasn't clear and didn't provide many answers on that front, so we'll have to have it remain a mystery. But what is clear is that shortly after applying the lash lure to her eyelashes and eyebrows, the woman's right eye was swollen closed, and by the next day, she had a fever of 104 degrees Fahrenheit. On the eighth day, she was still very ill, with deep ulcerations on her right eyelids and the papyral conjunctiva, which I had to look it up, is a skin that lines the inside of your eyelids. So all this sounds incredibly painful, but it gets worse. Because later that day, the woman died. It was said that plucking caused small open wounds that allowed the Lashler serum to seep in, causing infection and her unfortunate demise as well. Just to make your eyes twitch from fear just a little bit more, the Victorian era had another painful eye beautifier. And this time, it was all about big, bright, clean eyes. And to obtain this, oftentimes orange juice or lemon juice was dropped inside the eyeballs. You know, I've been cooking many a time and accidentally squirt lemon juice in my eye, and it is not a pleasant experience. It's literally acid, right? Plus, I would assume it would cause eyes to be more red than bright. But, you know, I guess all that crying and tearing up does kind of clean them out a bit. But experts say continued use of lemon juice as eye drops could cause abrasions and even blindness. Are we surprised there? Literally everything causes blindness that goes near these eyeballs during this time. If that wasn't enough pain to put your eyeballs through, there was another popular eye elixir trend the Victorians practiced. Deadly nightshade eye drops. One of the most poisonous plants in the world is belladonna, or deadly nightshade. The toxin in the plant causes the pupils of the eyes to dilate and become larger. And women woman believed these enlarged pupils were the most attractive thing since sliced bread because it gave a seductive doe eye appearance. And because they desired these results, they placed nightshade drops in their eyes before bed so the next morning they could wake up refreshed and, I'll bet, a bit delirious. Doing this would eventually cause visual distortions, such as blurred vision, and even blindness. There we go, we can't get rid of blindness here. And it may even kill you after prolonged use. So if you're looking for death, look no further. Side note, Queen Victoria used these belladonna drops in her later years as opposed to getting cataract surgery, which, looking at surgery practices during that time, yeah, you know, I don't blame her. Although they didn't rid her of her cataracts, they did enlarge her pupils so she could see. Speaking of powerful women, I once heard that if you give a woman the right lipstick, she can conquer the world. And that was certainly the case for Queen of the Nile Cleopatra, whose famous red lipstick was made by crushing and mixing together red ochre, carmine, beeswax, flowers, fish scales, and crushed ants. I mean, I was on board until fish scales. But the ancient Egyptians were more so known for another popular phase, the kiss of death. This phrase was coined because of the extremely harmful ingredients Egyptian women used to make lipstick. Why, you ask? It may not contain fish scales, but it did have fucus algin, which is basically just an ocean algae, so it's still pretty fishy, iodine, and bromine manonite. This particular concoction proved to be extremely toxic and often led to serious illness and sometimes, wait for it, death. So wearers of this beautiful shade tried not to lick their lips or French kiss their lovers. In 17th century Britain, wearing lipstick could actually get you killed. At this time, British Parliament passed a law stating that women found guilty of seducing men into matrimony by a cosmetic means, could be tried for witchcraft. And we all know what they did to those accused of being a witch now, don't we? Even if the world is against your beauty choices, a good hair day is enough to turn even the worst days around. I, for one, am currently doing this podcast episode with my hair in curlers. Not so easy to wear with headphones, but like a lot of the women in this episode, I consider it worth the trouble. And like me and my curlers, the ancient Egyptians had many practices that ensured their hair was looking good. For starters, if there was any gray hairs popping up, they would dye them by covering them with animal blood. And if that wasn't a long enough solution, they could also dye their hair using henna extract from leaves and shoots to dye their hair red. I, for one, would probably go the henna route, not the dumping animal blood on my head route, kind of like a Carry movie, Gone Wrong. If you haven't seen the movie Carrie, you have to see it. It's scary, but I consider myself a chicken, and I could watch the entire thing, so it's not too bad. To make this henna hair dye, henna leaves were picked, then dried, ground up, then mixed to form a paste which was applied to the hair. They also used this dye to color their fingernails and cleanse their skin, since it was seen to have healing properties. And you know what probably wasn't healing? Ancient Romans dyeing their hair with lead acetate, This was done by dipping a lead comb in vinegar and brushing it through their hair to dye it black. (laughs) Is it me or does lead seem like a one-cure-for-all type ingredient in the olden days? Really? I mean, they use it for everything. In the middle ages, there fortunately wasn't any lead in these next hair dye recipes, but it does get a bit more woo-woo. As if it wasn't already. Hair lightening was the thing to do, Light hair was preferred because angels were depicted as blonde, and you all know that they are super into purity at this time, and angels are as pure as you can get. To acquire this angelic hair, the individual would wear an opal necklace, which they believed the stone had some sort of purifying power and would keep their hair blonde. But after a while, the opal did a 360 and switched to a symbol of bad luck, so people stopped doing that. Ancient Romans also dyed their hair lighter. Blonde hair was used to signify ladies of the night, aka relationship professionals, aka, you know, just call them what you will. This could be accomplished by either making wigs from the blonde hair of German slaves, so not very nice, or by slathering the hair with ashes and pigeon doo-doo and, uh, urine. (laughs) And it did work. Urine has ammonia, which acts as a bleach, which does indeed dye hair blonde. It is also not that good to breathe in, and like I said earlier in this episode, can cause many health issues, but that's the name of the game in those days. If one was tired of that blonde business and decided brunettes had more fun, the people of the Middle Ages also had a recipe for darker hair, though it wasn't as easy as just wearing a piece of jewelry. For darkening hair, a mixture of roots and nuts were cooked, and the liquid would be used to soak the hair. Walnuts and chestnuts were the most popular nut choice. All one had to do was make a paste out of them to put on the hair for two days in a row. So uh, basically, they just let it rot on their head for a bit. They would then wash off all that fermented nuttiness, and ta-da, they would apparently have beautifully dark hair. In early Rome, women often colored graying hair dark with a delicious concoction made of boiled walnut shells, ashes, and the best ingredient earthworms. This would be ground into a paste and then applied to the hair. I'm really having trouble figuring out how pulverized earthworm helps to darken hair, but apparently it did the trick. So what if someone wanted to say, do away with hair altogether? Lucky for you, there was indeed a toxic recipe for that too, in the middle ages. To remove unwanted hair from one's legs or armpits, simply mix egg, lye, and good old arsenic sulfide. Apply generously to the spot you wish to remove hair from and leave on for eight minutes. And don't leave it on for any longer than that, or you risk a bit of skin coming off along with the hair. Seems safe, right? For thickening hair, your skin seems to be somewhat safe. Just mix goat turds with olive oil and leave it in your hair all night. And prepare for locks fit for a Rapunzel story. I'm sorry, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be able to do that. The goat turds, I cut it off at goat turds. Give me arsenic. (laughs) Makeup and beauty tricks from our past seem pretty dang terrifying. From makeup products that literally poison you, to trends that seem too absurd to be real, like contracting life-threatening illnesses on purpose just to be beautiful. We may laugh at all of it now, but before you judge too hard, maybe take a gander at some of the beauty trends and products of our time, Makeup with unpronounceable ingredients, people injecting their faces with toxins to paralyze it so it doesn't get wrinkles, cancer-causing tanning beds. Today, we see no lack of individuals willing to risk their lives for beauty, so it seems maybe nothing has changed. And that could be the most spooky thing of all. (laughs) ha. Okay, thank you for listening to this terrifying episode of Little Curiosities. I hope you got some Halloween horror in there. hope you got a little freaked out with all those uh, terrifying beauty cosmetics. Please remember not to try any of these crazy cosmetic tricks at home. I know it goes without saying, but still, I'll just say it just in case. Don't forget to follow the Little Curiosities podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Also, I love seeing all your reviews, so please leave one or rate us. It really does a lot to help our new little podcast get out there. So I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Look forward to next week where we will be discussing, of course, something else crazy, something else creepy, probably. So until then, ciao. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. Edited by Will Tendi. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy.
0: Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Mini Leakes, Teresa Judai and kenya moore each episode we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey yes hilarious shade and all the drama reality with the king podcast is available wherever you get your podcast